hello everyone. Uh, I'm Toby Ord and uh, I'm a, a junior research fellow at Balliol College and a philosopher uh, here at Oxford, uh, so part of the Department of Philosophy. And uh, I'm going to talk to you, uh, well the title of the talk is Shared Treasures, the True Value of Time and Money. And you may have heard a little bit about uh, that I've done some uh, charitable uh, work recently and this is going to connect with that. Uh, and also give you a little bit of uh, moral philosophy on the, uh, on the topic. So uh, what I've done in general, I think, is, is trying to put some of my academic ideas and the academic ideas of others uh, into practice in ethics. There's often a bit of a disconnect in ethics between the theory and the practice. So I've been trying to remedy that to some degree. So uh, the talk, I want you to think on a big picture uh, scale. And we're going to be talking about scale a bit. This is an artwork uh, uh, called One Billion Dollars. Uh, if you ever want to know what that looks like. Uh, and, uh, and this is a whole lot of uh, Rolex time sand. Uh, it's enough uh, for a human life worth of, uh, of, of uh, sand in an hourglass. Uh, to give you some kind of a feeling of scale. Uh, but now into uh, some more serious things. So let's just talk very briefly about uh, the value of money. And uh, this probably won't come as much of a surprise to you, the things I'm going to say at first. So uh, money is relatively simple to value. Uh, the value of money is, uh, is to do with what it can get us. Uh, we don't care about money intrinsically. We just care about uh, uh, what we can get with it. Uh, and uh, we call this instrumental value. And uh, more accurately, it's the value of the best thing uh, that you can get with it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you can get something very bad with it. Uh, all you care about is the best deal that you can get. Now, the value of time uh, is a bit more complicated. It has, uh, it has two parts to it. Sometimes it's like money, and we use it to get things that we want, uh, or to get money to get these things. So we could use the time to earn some money to buy something. Uh, but, oh, and this is uh, another case of instrumental value. Uh, but as well as that, it can be different. We can have cases where time itself is what we want, or more accurately, it's not just the time, it's uh, the time spent doing something that we like is what's of value. Uh, so that's, a, again, a pretty obvious idea, uh, just to situate things. Uh, and we call this intrinsic value. So, so unlike money, time can sometimes be intrinsically valuable uh, and sometimes can be instrumentally valuable. Uh, so if we're thinking about the value of time, uh, it's the value of the best thing it can be used for, taking both of these ways into account. Uh, so for example, you have an hour to spend, and you could uh, uh, use it to make a cake, or to make money to buy a cake, or to use it to talk to your friends. Uh, so these are some of your possibilities. And you just think about which of those ones is ultimately the best for you. And that's the value of your time. OK, so that's just the, the concepts of how you think about these things. But let's have a look at uh, how valuable they are uh, using this basic idea. Uh, so. What I said was that you use it to get things which are of ultimate intrinsic value. So what kinds of things could these be? And uh, moral philosophers talk about this quite a lot. This is a standard uh, topic of conversation in the journals. Uh, so it could be uh, physical objects being of ultimate value. Uh, I don't think that's all that plausible. But uh, it could be experiences that you have. It could be happiness. So it might be that you can reduce all experiences down to happiness, perhaps. Uh, it might be, education might be of intrinsic value. Of course, if something like education is of intrinsic value, it won't be the only thing. It might be education's of value and happiness is also of value and, and so forth. 
uh, perhaps health uh, is of intrinsic value, or at least it's a, certainly of some value uh, uh, in as much as it contributes to happiness and, uh, and other parts of our life. Uh, what we're going to look at here uh, to focus on, uh, because you can get the most interesting results, is to look at the value of health. Uh, so we'll look at that as a special example, and, and I'll show you how valuable time and money are in this respect. So the value of money in terms of health is what we want to look at first. So this might seem a little bit dry, but you, you'll, you'll see where it's going soon enough. Uh, so how do you measure the value of health? Uh, so we could think about our own health, uh, but I want you to think bigger than that. Uh, and to think about uh, the health of many people. If you look at the NHS, uh, they try to work out how they can spend their budget to help people the most uh, in terms of their health. Uh, this obviously makes sense. And uh, the idea there is to buy the most health for the least money. Or perhaps more accurately, they've got a fixed amount of money that they're given by the government, and they want to get the most health for that amount of money. The most improvement in health, you might say. Uh, so it's th this would give us uh, the value of uh, money in terms of health. So how much health can we buy with our money? Uh, and you might just wonder, how on earth are you going to do that? It sounds like a very difficult question, and indeed it is a very difficult question. Uh, but there's a basic methodology that they use. So the first type of question you might think of is, how many lives can you save with money uh, to try to work out how valuable it is? Uh, this is an interesting question, uh, but it's is not uh, the best way to deal with it. So there's this truism in public health that no one has ever saved a life. You might think you saved someone's life, but what you do is you stop them dying now, but they still die later. Uh, this is this problem, unless you make someone immortal, that you don't ultimately save their life. And it seems to matter, though, how many extra years of life you give them. So if you ran into the middle of the road to save someone from being hit by a truck and push them to the other side of the road where they got hit by a bus five seconds later. In some sense, you saved their life, but it seems a bit trivial and not worth that much. Uh, we probably, therefore, you're thinking, well, OK, we need to take into account the amount of time that, that you give someone. It seems to be an important way to, to move on there. So we can extend lives, and we could think about how many life years we can save. So this isn't a decent approach, but then you might think, well, hang on, there's more to health than this. There's also the quality of the life. So it might be the case that someone's considering an aggressive uh, chemotherapy for cancer. And they think, well, this is going to give, extend my life, probably, but at a lower quality of life, because it will be so difficult and painful. So there are trade-offs between quantity and quality of life, like that, that, that doctors need to think about. And there are also cases where we care about just improving the quality of someone's life in general. So if I have a really bad toothache and I want to go to the dentist, then that's something is added of value to me if I have this toothache fixed even though it might not be extending my life. So we want to think about quality of life as well as extension of life. It's pretty obvious stuff. Uh, now, when we think about this, we think, well, maybe we can combine these two together. And indeed, that's what they do. Uh, they use this approach, and they talk about quality-adjusted life years. So the idea there, uh, well, we'll come to it in a second. Uh, they, they call quality-adjusted life year, turns into this acronym QUALI. So it takes into account quality and quantity and the standard approach in public health. And here's how it works. It, sometimes it's presented very complexly, but actually it's a very simple idea. Uh, imagine this is uh, someone's life, and we think about it. We've got time going across the uh, horizontal axis here. And so let's suppose uh, that uh, the quality of their health uh, goes like this over their life. There's a, there's a dip in the middle where they get quite sick, and then uh, ra rather rapidly, and then more slowly they recover from that illness. 
And then there's a slower decline and then a very rapid decline at the end of the life, uh, just after 70 years in this case. So what you could do is you could think about, what about that area under the graph? Uh, if we improve someone's quality of life, it increases this area under the graph. And if we improve the, uh, the length of their life, that also increases this area. This seems to perhaps be what we're interested in. And that's the approach that, uh, that health economists use. So uh, to simplify matters, we'll use some rectangles here. So you could say, what about if we improved the quality of life like this, or if we improved the quantity of life there? And then you can work out these quality-adjusted life years by just multiplying these things together. So 60 years of life improved by 20% quality uh, is equal to 12 of these quality-adjusted life years. So you just multiply the things together. It's, it's a pretty simple concept. Uh, you don't need to pay attention to those numbers either. If they're not, it's not very relevant. Um, I, was just, I was just trying to give you an example as to you and say, how do you know which of these is a better improvement? Now, obviously, it's very difficult to, to use this method in some cases because you think, well, for a certain illness, how do we set the quality weightings? How do we know how bad it is to have a certain condition? And what they do is they ask a lot of questions of people both uh, with and without these conditions, and they ask them how much they're willing to trade off. Uh, so if they find someone who is blind and they want to know how difficult it is to be blind and how important it is to cure people who are blind, how much health gain would be made by this, then they ask them, would you prefer to live for five years of life with sight or 10 years of life blind? And, then they, and they was, let's suppose they say 10 years of life uh, blind is better. And then they say, well, what about uh, nine years with, or, you know, and with sight versus 10 years blind? And they, they keep asking them these different questions to elicit answers to how they would trade off quality versus quantity of life. And they use this to work out quality weights. And it's not perfect, it's not a precision thing, but the rough idea is that you'll get it somewhat right. Uh, maybe you'll come up with 70% and 80% would have been a better answer, but at least you're somewhere in the ballpark of the correct answers. And that's all we'll need for the talk today, so you don't need to worry too much about the, the precise details of it. So what is a, one of these quality-adjusted life years, this measurement of health? What, what is it worth? So uh, we can look at how much the NHS is prepared to spend for one of these. And they're prepared to spend uh, at least £20,000 per quality. So the idea is that if a new treatment comes on the market and the treatment will cost uh, less than £20,000 per quality, then they fund it. If it will cost more than £30,000, the rule is supposed to be that they don't fund it. And if it costs somewhere in between, then they look at the details of the case. They look at extra benefits it will have, whether it's for a disadvantaged group, and questions like this, to try to sort out the, the rough cases. Uh, but the basic idea is they're prepared to spend certainly at least £20,000. Sometimes I'll spend more. Now, there are 8,760 uh, hours in a year. Uh, so this comes to about £2.30 per hour, which is an interesting way to think about it. So uh, one question is, how much would you spend in order to work out how much something's worth? If you're prepared to spend at least a certain amount, then it's, it's worth more than that to you. So how much would you spend uh, for a year of healthy life? That's it's a bit difficult to answer that, I think, if you're thinking of lumps of £20,000, particularly if you don't have a spare £20,000 floating around. Um, so here are a couple of ways to think about it, though. Um, it's a pretty good compared to an hour at the cinema. Uh, if you spend £2.30 uh, for an hour of healthy life, I mean, that's cheaper than a cinema ticket. And it's also, you might think that that's, that's better. I mean, cinema upgrades an hour or so of life into a particularly fun experience. And maybe it improves some of your life later by reflecting upon it. Uh, but this looks pretty good to me. Uh, now, another way to think about it is suppose you could have a salary of £20,000 or you could have, uh, for your life, uh, or you could have a salary of £30,000 but be blind. Which one of those would you prefer? 
And I, I think I value my sight quite a lot. And uh, I think it'd be quite difficult being blind. So I would prefer the £20,000 salary. So if you would prefer the £20,000 salary, it turns out that that means that you value your quality at at least £20,000 per year because of the weightings they use for blindness is about a half. So, so that's, that's another way to think about it. OK. So uh, probably a lot of you think that yeah, £2.30 per hour of, of health is a pretty good deal and that it is worth at least that much, that the NHS isn't spending too much on this, that if anything, maybe they should be increasing their price for it because it seems to be a pretty good deal at that price and maybe it's a good deal at a higher price as well. Maybe it's worth £6 an hour or more. So uh, then we can ask this question, uh, what does a quality cost? So I said that uh, when they're thinking about additional treatment in the NHS, it's about £20,000 is the, the question, that, the, the point uh, that they look at. But can you get a quality uh, cheaper than that, a year of life at full health equivalent, cheaper than £20,000? Well, yes, you can. And it's not that surprising. If you look in other countries, you can get it cheaper. So in the UK, you can actually get some health very, very cheap. Uh, but we already do that. So all of that health is bought. Uh, so the NHS, there are some very cheap treatments that they have for, for various illnesses. And they're always provided. Uh, if we added more money to, to funding uh, the NHS, we wouldn't get more of those treatments because those are the most obvious no-brainer decisions to make. But there are many countries where those things still haven't happened due to lack of financing in, in particular, and sometimes also due to a lack of priority setting. They're not quite sure what the most cost-effective things are. So uh, I said that's a pretty good deal, but can we get one for less? Let's look at preventing or curing uh, HIV AIDS as a case study, or I should say preventing or treating really. Uh, now, of course, AIDS is a major cause of death and disability in developing countries. And there are heaps of approaches to this. And so let's take them one at a time and have a look at the types of examples you can get. So what I've got on here is a graph of what a quality costs. So um, here are a couple of different ways of treating uh, AIDS. So the first one is treatment of Kaposi's sarcoma the first of these blue bars. And Kaposi's sarcoma is an AIDS-defining illness. It's the type of illness that you don't get unless your immune system is so compromised uh, that you sh it shows that HIV is already very progressed in the patient. Now, you can directly treat that. And if people do treat it, the cost-effectiveness is represented by this, uh, this bar, where longer bars are better. So in fact, you can see it's measured in how many quality-adjusted life years do you get per 1,000 pounds. And it turns out that. Uh, it's, if we put on here the £20,000 per quality barrier, you can see that it's around about the level that the NHS would fund. So it would be funded here. Um, but it's a, So I think it would be a pretty good deal in general to treat it. And if I had this illness, I'd be paying to treat it and so on. Uh, now, antiretroviral therapy, though, is the next one. And you can see that's much more cost-effective as a way of treating AIDS. You, it's about uh, 20 times as cost-effective. So that's a really big difference because you can help 20 times as many people. And so it shows that the price for a quality is a 20th you know, uh, of what we thought it was, because you could use it to treat, these, uh, treat people with antiretroviral therapy when they've got AIDS. Now, we can zoom out a bit, though, and look at some other methods to treat people. So prevention of transmission during pregnancy turns out to be about three or four times as cost-effective as that. And so we're moving here from uh, the first one is something like treating the symptom. The second one is treating the illness. This third one is prevention of the, of the illness. And 
it looks like it's quite a lot more cost-effective from the studies that have been done on this. Then we can zoom out again, and we can look at distribution of condoms. So it's another form of prevention of AIDS. And this looks much more cost-effective again. And now we can't even see uh, the treatment of Carposis sarcoma on the graph anymore. And we can't even see the NHS uh, threshold, although it is, it is that little line there. So I have drawn it on. And then we can zoom out again and look at education for high-risk groups, which is a very high-level strategy, but is much cheaper, again, at preventing AIDS. So I think that, that's, that's pretty amazing when you look at these things. And from an untrained perspective, you'd think, well, maybe they're all equally cost-effective or somewhere in the same factor of 10 or something like that. You wouldn't be expecting there to be this much distribution between the different, treat, different interventions. At least I wouldn't be expecting it. I was quite surprised when I found out about this type of thing, and that's partly what led to my work. Uh, but let's continue this story a little bit further. Education for high-risk groups is the most cost-effective thing I know of for treating AIDS, well, preventing it. But we can zoom out a lot on that graph and look at uh, treatment for parasitic infections is another uh, health intervention that you could do. And this is about the limit of cost-effectiveness that anyone knows of for, uh, for treatments that you can do at the moment. So I'll say a little bit more about this. So what are the parasitic infections I'm talking about here? And how can they be uh, treated so much more effectively than for, for AIDS? So about 33 million people have AIDS and about 1,400 million people, so 1.4 billion people, have what are called neglected tropical diseases, uh, or NTDs. And most of these are infections caused by parasitic worms inside the body. And these worms range from microscopic, uh, with very many of them obviously, through to very large macroscopic worms that could be uh, uh, up to a metre long, or something like that. And uh, that live in the gut, or the microscopic ones sometimes live in the liver or the kidneys and other other organs. So, they're and they're very unpleasant uh, infections, although typically not as bad as having AIDS uh, for each individual. Yes, uh, symptoms include pain, blindness, and disfigurement, uh, serious disfigurement actually, which is one of the worst symptoms because it means that people sometimes get rejected from their societies, and then that causes them a lot of trouble. And damage to kidneys, liver. Uh, and intestines, uh, also death in some cases, or shortening of lifespan. And these things are very cheaply treatable. So they're not as bad for the individual as having AIDS in general, but they're much more cheaply treatable. So you can uh, get more health for less money. Uh, and in fact, I should explain what I mean by cheaply treatable. Uh, it costs about, including all of the cost of distribution and overheads of the intervention, it costs around about 25 pence uh, per cure. Uh, and you can go to areas where everyone has this illness. So you, you can treat everyone and it will cure everyone. Sometimes you hear figures and the figure is how much it costs for the, the drug inside the injection, which doesn't take into account the costs of giving it, get, getting it to the village, uh, which is a large issue of distributional costs. And it doesn't take into account the fact that, that not everyone who you inject was going to get the, say, with a vaccine, was going to get the illness in the first place. And so once you take those things into account, the cost effectiveness decreases. So it's quite difficult and quite unintuitive. You basically have to look up the World Health Organization's reports on the cost effectiveness to find out what they are. It's not very intuitive. Um, but in this case, it's very cheaply treatable, and they can get the treatments done through the school system because you mainly need to treat children. If you treat them uh, for seven years while they're at school, then they're basically immune uh, for the rest of their lives to these things. So it turns out that that's actually a very effective way and the treatments then can be owned by the state that you're working in. They can just make it part of the school system to do it and they're often using donated drugs. So it turns out that all of these factors make it very cheaply treatable. 
So uh, now here's an interesting thing. Uh, this particular one here comes down to two pounds 14 per quality adjusted life year. Uh, now that we've moved through this hierarchy of, of costs. And this is uh, what before we'd said we'd pay for an hour of health. And you can actually get a year of health uh, for the same price. Uh, I say £2.14 per quali. It's more like uh, looking at £2.14 to get 10 years of life improved by 10% or something like that. It's not so much life extension as it is life quality improvement. But, uh, but this is very impressive. I mean, this is what we pay for an hour, whereas it's it, what it does is helps people uh, for years. So let's think about that, just that comparison between the hour and the year to, to try to let that sink in. So I, I prepared this little uh, diagram. Uh, so this is an, an hour and a year. Okay, and uh, I had to redo this slide because I originally had a whole lot of copies of this clock and then it took about two minutes to load up the slide. So, uh, so I had to just then take a, a screenshot of the slide and then show you the screenshot. So. Uh, so what can we learn from all of this? Let's have a little bit of a recap. I've taken you on a, a bit of a journey here. So. Health programs in developing countries can be amazingly cost-effective, uh, 10,000 times more so than here in the UK. I should say on the margin for the economists in the audience that uh, uh, the, there are treatments which are just as effective in the UK, in fact, the same drugs. Um, however, they, they always give them out. It's not like they don't give them out due to lack of funding. So when they fund additional things here, they're about 10,000 times more, uh, uh, well, 10,000 times less cost and I'm not complaining about them either. I think that they're actually still a good deal at that level. Just, this is just showing how amazingly additional you can get. Uh, so this is also about 10,000 times better than is needed to be a good deal. So that's, that's pretty good, right? I mean, if you, if you go down the high street and you find something and it's a good deal and then you find something 10,000 times better in the shop, <laughs> you'd, be pretty, you'd be pretty impressed by that. Uh, at least I, I would. Uh, so, uh, so money is worth much more than we might have thought in this regard. You might have thought that two pounds... Uh, 14, you can't get that much for it. But now you find out you can get something 10,000 times better than maybe you thought before, which is, which is pretty good. Uh, so it's a year of life at full health. Uh, but only if it's used for the best programs. And there were many programs there. And if you spend it on things which are less cost effective, it wouldn't quite reach that level. So that's something to bear in mind for later. Now, I want to connect this uh, into charity. So these differences in cost effectiveness aren't just of interest to policymakers and people thinking about, you know, people at the World Health Organization or in the NHS. Uh, they're also important for all of us when it comes to charity. So when we donate money to charity, we, or at least, at least I think a lot of people, uh, are trying to help people and to help them as much as they can. So suppose we donate money to help fight uh, HIV AIDS. It really matters whether the program is aimed at fighting Kaposi sarcoma or at education of high-risk groups, uh, because one of those things is about a thousand times more cost-effective than the other in terms of actually uh, helping improve health. So you want to think about these things. Uh, it turns out it's, very, it's actually very difficult to find out where the money's going with charities, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, I'll get onto that a little bit. Uh, also, if we really want to help people, we should consider changing the focus in that case from AIDS to neglected tropical diseases if you can actually help people 10 times as much. Now, here is a, a series of diagrams that I prepared to, to give an example of this. So imagine you're putting a, a pound into a bucket uh, to go towards a certain charity, and there's five different charities, each, each holding their own bucket. 
you can get a situation where uh, I've represented as a square here to show how much good comes of donating to these groups, uh, where the second one is 10 times uh, the impact of the first one, and then 10 times that, and then 10 times that. Uh, and then um, this one uh, is, requires a couple of full slides of blue in order to, to demonstrate it. And so it is, this is really important. And also, uh, when you're thinking about giving to, uh, uh, to charities, that it really matters how much goes into that fifth bucket. Uh, because for every pound coin that goes in there, it does a huge amount of good, whereas it outweighs say 5,000 pounds coins going into the first bucket. So it becomes really important where to give, and it ends up being, uh, I think, well, we'll, we'll see uh, here. Uh, where to give ends up being, I think, even more important than if you give. Uh, you might think, well, that, that doesn't really make sense, because if you don't give anything, then, the, you know. But the, you see the rhetorical point I'm trying to make here, is that if someone was previously giving enough money, let's say, to, to cure 100 years of life, which to prevent you know, 100 years of ill health or to extend life by 100 years. Uh, and the difference between them doing that or nothing, zero years, is smaller than the difference between the 100 years and extending that to 10,000 years. That's the basic idea. Uh, but yes, we, uh, we tend to distribute our money uh, across these healthcare interventions, something like this. You might have hoped that we would uh, really push it up towards the, the fifth bucket in most cases, but it, it's not, it doesn't happen so much. And one of the reasons for this is that uh, there's, this, there's something of a disconnect when it comes to, uh, to charity, where if we go down to the high street and, uh, and we do want to buy something, suppose you want to buy a shirt, then if, the, if one shop had shirts 10,000 times the price of another shop, you just, you just wouldn't buy them there, right? Uh, so it would be pretty simple. But the problem is there's a disconnect when it comes to charity. In some sense, it's a little bit like a market transaction because someone provides money and then the charity helps some other people. And in these cases, though, what the, the disconnect is that the person who receives the benefit is different from the person who pays the price. And so there's less of a, of, of a feedback loop keeping the prices uh, in a sensible level when it comes to charity. Uh, and, and remember that I am saying that actually even this first bucket is actually a good deal. If none of the other buckets ex existed, I think it would be uh, well worth doing. And I just think this just shows how amazingly cost-effective these later ones are. So uh, what, does, what does this all mean? Well, our money is worth an incredible amount. It's, uh, but this is only if it's not used on ourselves. So this is where it comes into the sharing treasures aspect. Uh, and only if it's spent very wisely. So you can get something like 10,000 times the benefit for others as we can for ourselves, because we thought that the, uh, uh, the two pounds uh, 30 uh, for a year of healthy life, sorry, two pounds 30 for an hour of life was a good deal, and then we find out that uh, you can get 10,000 hours of life for the same price if it's for someone else. So it does actually seem to be that, uh, that uh, other people can get as much good from uh, an extra pound as I could from an extra 10,000 pounds, which is a pretty scary concept, I think. Uh, it's pretty, pretty it's exciting as well. Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, and so if you want to put this into percentage terms, I mean, this is a million percent improvement, which is, which is pretty good. Uh, and it can, another way to think about it is it can turn hours into years. So uh, continuing this, uh, we can do amazing things if we want to, uh, once you realize that you can have such an impact on other people's health. So while living in the UK, uh, doing whatever you want to do, and living an affluent lifestyle, uh, if you were to give away 10% of your future income, uh, which is compatible with all of those things, then you could save about 50,000 years of life at full health. 
So if you think back you know, to, <clears throat> to the birth of Christ, those 2,000 years, uh, this is 25 times longer than that. Uh, this is pretty good. Uh, equivalent to 500 centuries of life at full health is just another way of conceptualizing that, or realistically more like 500 millennia of life improved by 10% quality, probably. Uh, spread over about 50,000 people, probably. So 50,000, you know, that, that's the kind of amount of people that you could help. So it's, it's pretty exciting, I think, to think, hey, I could do that if I wanted to. Uh, maybe, maybe that's an interesting possibility. So let's just return, though. Uh, I'll, I'll get onto that a little bit later, but let's return to time versus money. So donating our money is typically worth much more than donating our time if you give the money to these most cost-effective causes. And I think this is quite surprising, and it's not intuitive. The intuitive idea, I think, is more the type of thing that would make a good story in a, in a book or something, uh, where you think, I'm particularly good at, at what I do in my job, so if I help with my job, <clears throat> that's probably the best way that I can help. Uh, it's, just, it's just surprising that it's actually not the case. So uh, it, it's certainly intuitive, but, but it's not really the case. Uh, there, are, there are exceptions to this, uh, but in general, this is, this is true. And uh, as an example, most doctors would do less good by traveling abroad to perform surgeries uh, than by donating a week's worth of salary. Uh, so, and if you talk to groups that do fly doctors around to do surgeries, they, they know this as well. Uh, but it's, it's interestingly, it's easier to get a doctor to fly over to do surgeries for a week than it is to get them to donate a week's worth of their money as well. Uh, and this is true for most professions. Uh, but but no, it's not always true. But when it is true, uh, how can it be? I mean, it, it does, as I say, seem very counterintuitive. Well, I think this, this graph uh, really helps to explain that uh, as well as possible. So this is a graph of the world income distribution. So you might wonder how is money distributed, uh, uh, or how is income distributed across people in the world? Well, if you get all 6.7 billion people in the world and you line them up uh, from poorest through to richest, uh, then this is how the income is distributed. And you can see that it's a very unequal distribution. If it was an equal distribution, this would be a flat graph. Uh, but, but it's very skewed uh, towards the rich in this case. And uh, I've done a dotted line at the top uh, because this graph actually would keep going up. And at this scale, it would actually be taller than Mount Everest um, if you kept going until you got to the highest income levels. Uh, so it's just quite interesting. It, it's, the data of this is available. Um, you can look up uh, the papers and so on. And I should add, that I say here, uh, this is the income per household member uh, in US dollars purchasing power parity adjusted. That's what the PPP stands for. So this takes into account the fact that money goes further in poorer countries. So um, in general, I mean, if you're in India, it goes about five times as far. And so uh, then the household incomes in India are then multiplied by five to take that into account, to translate it all into how a US dollar would be spent in uh, small town USA. So what's uh, particularly interesting about this is that you might imagine uh, that you're somewhere around here or something on this graph. Uh, but it's, uh, it's probably not the case. Uh, most people here, uh, and uh, I know uh, I am, uh, am in this uh, richest uh, 2%. Uh, because what we're used to is comparing ourselves to the people in our own countries, and we're probably not in the richest 2%. But if you think about it on a world scale, it's surprising. And we've got this calculator. I should get onto this a bit later, but I've got a website which it does include this calculator. And you can type in uh, your household income per capita. And 
uh, and see where you are in the world income distribution. And it's, it's quite interesting. I did this while I was a student, a PhD student, on a AHRC, AHRC uh, research grant. And I ended up in the richest, I think, 4.5% of the world's population, uh, even though uh, all of my friends you know, who, who had jobs couldn't understand how I could live on such a small amount of money. And, and then the website also points out that if you donated 10% of that, you know, I would still be in the richest 5.5% of the world's population. So it seemed, while at first glance it wouldn't seem to be possible to, to give away a reasonable fraction of a student grant, I realised, well, actually, uh, most of the world's population can get by on less than that. So it probably is actually possible if I, if I really wanted to do it. So, uh, oh, and I should, I should add that, that the reason I really bring this up is you might think, how is this possible? The reason it's possible is because we're very rich on a world scale. And uh, it's not that surprising. If you think about uh, a, uh, if you imagine a millionaire who, who meets some very poor people and wants to help them out uh, because they're homeless and he decides to spend his time building a house for them, you might think that's a bit odd. You know, why doesn't he just give them money? Uh, that's what he, he would be able to do much more effectively. And this is this kind of case. When, when you've got a, such a large uh, multiple of the money of the people you're trying to help, often giving money can just be more effective than direct work. So I thought about all of these things uh, a few years ago while I was a student uh, here at Oxford. And my response was uh, that in order to live up to my values, uh, I'd give away more than half of my future income. So my basic approach was to try to restrict myself to, for the rest of my life to a grad student income. That's how I decided to do it. Because I thought, well, I, I'm having a good time at the moment. And, uh, and if I just you know, inflation adjust that amount uh, for my life and add in a small buffer in case, uh, so I can save up a bit of money in case things go wrong somehow, uh, I'm happy enough to do that. It's not much of a problem for me. I still have almost everything that's of value in my life. I have wonderful relationships and uh, time spent talking to people, reading beautiful books, listening to beautiful music, uh, walking through the, the parks and uh, buildings. I can still do all of those things. So I thought, well, that's, uh, I would miss out on a few extra things, but it's like you have a slightly smaller house. But that's not actually a big deal compared to these types of benefits we're talking about. Uh, and uh, so yeah, so I worked out that over my life I'd earn about one and a half million pounds and that I'd be able to give away about a million pounds of that. Uh, that's in today's terms, obviously. These numbers would be higher when you actually earn them, obviously, but at that point a pound's not worth very much, so I've just translated it into today's terms. And so I set up a society for people who want to join me and uh, commit to donating 10% of their income uh, to wherever it is that they think can do the most to help people uh, in developing countries, so to help fight the causes or effects of, of global poverty. This was the idea. In fact, I had a number of people, I, I set it up because a number of people contacted me after I wrote a bit about this on the internet, saying, oh, how do I join? I said, join what? Uh, there isn't anything. They said, how do I do what you're going to do? And so I thought, well, maybe I should set up some kind of an organisation. I don't think I'm the most natural person to run such an organisation, but uh, no one else was doing it, so I thought I should try to put some of these ideas into practice and, and make things a bit easier. So, uh, so it would also... Uh, this organisation that I've set up uh, would run a website which collected and shared the best information in the world on cost effectiveness of different charities. So that's mainly through utilising the World Health Organisation and uh, Centres for Disease Control in America uh, and the World Bank, uh, utilising the research that these groups have funded on this. Uh, there are a couple of different projects uh, and those projects uh, do meta-analyses of all of the different studies which are done on 
cost-effectiveness of health programs. They get a very large number of studies together and they take the averages and so on and look at the different cases and try to best put all the data together. Uh, they've produced these reports for ministers for health in developing countries. So the reports are pretty impossible to read uh, for the general public. So part of the idea is to then share that information, make it more accessible, and uh, produce graphs and so on uh, that, you know, that try to just make it clear what's going on uh, rather than have it all in uh, more uh, ministerial jargon. Uh, and to show how it's linked into charity, uh, not just into choosing health programs when you're a minister for health. So the idea there was that uh, it would be in some form of a club for, or society for people who wanted to do this so that they could talk about it with each other and if anything was difficult, they could ask other people how they were coping with, uh, with living on a reduced income. Uh, and also they could talk about uh, advice on, on where to give and what, what's cost effective and whether there's any particular problem with a particular organisation who looks good on paper, are they really that good and so on, to have this conversation. And also then to share a lot of this information with other people who think, hey, yeah, that all sounds like a good idea but I'm not quite sure about this 10% thing. So there were two different aims, uh, which I'll explain here. So the organisation is called Giving What We Can. And the two aims are to get people to give more and to get people to give more effectively. So the getting people to give more in, in itself is really split into two parts. One is to give a larger proportion of what we earn and the other is to, to think about giving it over your whole life. Uh, so when you do that, like I did and worked out that I'd earn about one and a half million pounds as an academic and that I could give away about a million of that, I'd never thought I'd be able to give away that amount of money until I actually sat down and calculated it. And I thought it was, it was very interesting to do so because I just thought, wow, I could uh, lead to this level of benefit if I wanted to. Um, that in that case, it's about 500,000 uh, quality adjusted life years. Uh, and to put that into perspective, uh, Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years. So it's, kind of, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool. Uh, so what you can see here with this graph down the bottom is just to show you that, that getting people to give more and to give more effectively fit together very well, hand in hand. So if the original small square in the, in the bottom left there is, is how much people give and their current cost effectiveness, if you improve both of those dimensions, then the total impact increases as the product of those two numbers. Uh, so it can have uh, a very good synergistic effect. So uh, what was the reaction to all of this? Well, we launched the society in November and there was a lot of interest in the news. And uh, there was, uh, we had about 20 members at the time of launch, including a number of prominent philosophers and development economists. So Peter Singer uh, was a, a member and, and still is. Uh, and Thomas Poggy, uh, Michael Kramer, uh, various people who you might know. And uh, since then, we've more than doubled the number of members, and we're trying to, uh, to triple the number of members by the end of our first year, is the, is the current plan. So there's not actually all that many people, uh, but we're trying to achieve a lot. And uh, here's the summary at the moment. 53 members from eight countries. This is slightly out of date, actually. We've had some more members. Uh, and uh, total pledges of about a million, 11 million uh, pounds, or about 4 million years of life, uh, full health. Uh, from these members. So it's a small number of people making a large difference is the idea. Um, ideally, a large number of people making an enormous difference, <laughs> I might add. Uh, so let's think about uh, time versus money again to summarise all of this. So uh, has money won? Uh, it seems that money is very valuable. Uh, now, not quite. Uh, so. Uh, obviously, one thing we can do is use, convert time into money uh, by working and then use money. Uh, so, so it can never really win all that much in a sense. 
Um, however, it can do even more than that. I mean, I thought that my time spent volunteering uh, could never be worth as much as my donated salary. Uh, but then I realized that uh, actually by setting up this organization and publicizing these ideas and so forth, that it could have actually a much larger impact. Uh, because it seems like a target you can never reach, but then when you realize that it's actually a multiplier effect on that target of getting other people to try to do the same thing, uh, then you realize well, actually you can beat that. Uh, so uh, I'd already raised uh, more money uh, over the last year than my entire future income uh, that will be donated to very similar causes. So uh, actually, uh, time uh, in some of these cases can, can be worth more than money. Uh, but if it's a particularly good uh, strategic opportunity, then it can. And uh, lastly, uh, so to summarize these things, I said uh, £2.14 is, uh, is what it costs to get a year of healthy life, or quality. And one hour of work, um, uh, uh, if you uh, earned £21.40 an hour, as an example, would be 10 years of healthy life that you could produce in an hour of work. Uh, you can obviously use your own hourly rates. Uh, or another way is, is one hour is uh, in, of time spent promoting uh, most effective causes or uh, promoting effective giving in general. Um, could, be, could be a lot more than that. And uh, uh, this one hour talk, uh, fact, uh, including questions, uh, a lot of ideas, hopefully uh, a lot of value. Uh, I think that if, if you really try to get these ideas and push them and see what they can do, uh, then you can really make things very good. Uh, and I'll leave you here with, uh, with four different websites. Uh, the one on the top left, we well, can't really see them actually, this, this project is a bit dark. Um, is uh, givingwhatwecan.org, which is the society website, uh, which has, a lot of, has all of this information. And it also has uh, the, these giving calculators and things where you can work out how much you could achieve and you could work out uh, how rich you are, which is quite interesting, and uh, see the world income distribution uh, and also see how effective a lot of different types of interventions are in developing countries. Uh, the one below it is my personal website, AmiraClear. The uh, one at the uh, top right is dcp2.org, which is the, uh, one of these fabulous reports uh, for Ministers for Health in Developing Countries, which includes a lot of this raw data. And that's very interesting to look at if you're the type of person who likes looking at uh, raw data. Uh, and uh, the one in the bottom right is uh, an organisation I gave £10,000 to last year, uh, the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, uh, which is based at Imperial College. And they work on neglected tropical diseases. I gave uh, another £10,000 to uh, a group called Deworm the World, who are uh, the only other group really uh, fully devoted to this, which are uh, based in America. So, uh, yeah, so uh, it was quite nice actually, because that was the £10,000 that I'd saved up to donate uh, while a student. So that was quite good. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, do people have any questions?